Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Peter Hilliard, what a unique pleasure to have you here. I don't do a lot of these things where I bring in people from my own life. Right. You know, a lot of podcasts start out and you can kind of tell that podcasts are new because three of the first six episodes will be like this co-host's friend. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. It's like, well, do they have something to offer? Yeah, exactly. But in this case... I think you really do. You and I reconnected recently on the phone. Uh, You were my band teacher in high school at my evangelical uh, (laughs) Christian high school. And we have stayed in touch a bit uh, through the years. And you kind of followed the Sherwood stuff a little bit. And and then more recently, we've been talking about sort of the faith deconstruction and the the theological stuff. Sure. And, you know, you played a really important role in my life, which we will get to. But also, I think that there's a lot here that people are going to be interested in. And you have a truly unique angle on this Christian music sort of miniseries, because you are a classical composer. You compose operas. Like, your music is the kind of thing that I can tell is good, but I cannot access. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's very different than the other Christian musicians that I have uh, spoken with previously on the show. 
I would like you to kind of tell us what we need to know about your story, both as a musician and as someone who was steeped in evangelical Protestantism up through the point where you are teaching at my high school. Super. And then we'll talk about that time where we intersect. And then we'll talk about the time after. And we'll get into all kinds of stuff about your own personal journey with deconstruction, your experience within evangelicalism as a composer and musician on the more kind of choral, classical, operatic side. And your work now at a Catholic institution, all these different ponds that you've got your toe in, which I think people will find quite interesting. I was born in San Bernardino, California in 1975, and my father was in the Air Force at the time, and we moved a lot. He would get restationed. We moved from one place to another. Um, And that really affected my experience of church. I think the first church I remember attending was in Dixon or Davis, California. It was a Baptist church. And then our, my family moved to Weed, California, way up north, and yep. I attended I attended the Berean Fundamentalist Church. Like the word fundamentalist was actually in the name of the church. <laughs> that's a sign of that's a kind That'll of sign tell right you. there. Sure, yeah. sure. And then I moved to we moved to Redding, California, and I attended a church that met in my middle school gymnasium. And then I went to college eventually, and I moved to Baltimore. And I got a job. I was rebellious. I got a job as a cantor at a Lutheran church wow. with, with a service in German. And then I changed majors and moved across the country. I had met my, the woman I married and my, the love of my life at, at Peabody, but we both left Peabody. I went to, to California to pursue a composition degree because I originally had wanted to be a, an opera singer. And I realized that I was much better suited to being a composer. I used to tell that story and say, like, I have experienced many different ways of doing music and worship at church, what you call high church, what you might call low church. Right. You know, and now I'm starting to reframe all of that and say it. I mean, obviously, those lessons that you learn about how style works in churches, those are important. But I also... I'm coming to really appreciate that I met God in all of those places. Hmm. The people that I got to know who spoke into the, my life and the life of my family, they were Christ to me. And the reason I think that's important is that after you've spent so much time in so many different places and you've met God and had been spiritually fed in so many different places, it becomes really impossible to take the position that God is somehow standing outside of all these churches and going, well, this is nice and I'm going to bless it, but I sort of wish you were over here at this one church that's getting it right. (laughs) I just can't believe, I can't believe that. It's impossible to believe it because you just literally experienced the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, it wouldn't be fair to my experience of God in all those places. And that's not to say that I think that every one of those churches was right. I think a lot of the places I've been have been actually pretty toxic. And some of the things that I've learned in those places, I have to unlearn. But I don't think that God thinks about denominations in that way. <laughs> I can't anymore. Yeah, you have a really unique experience because even people who think their way to a position of like, okay, I recognize that my denomination has a little overconfidence in sort of their take on things, their reading of scripture, their whatever. People can think their way fairly, I think probably most listeners of this podcast, if not all, have had a point where they sort of 
recognized the limitations of whatever particular version of Christianity they were given. Yeah. But most of us don't have a lived experience in that wide of a swath. You know, the other thing I didn't mention is that, you know, after I've left my this position that I had been in for 18, 19 years, I started doing all these virtual services so we could try to find another place for our family. And so I've since experienced a bunch more different ways of doing churches. And there's a church in um, in Trenton, a black church in Trenton that we have been attending every so often. And it's I mean, for a musician like me who loves black music, Mm -hmm. I go in there and it's like. I don't know. It's a mystical experience to be in there for me. And I feel the presence of God very strongly. And one of the things I love about going to that church is that there's nothing that I can offer that they actually need. Like (laughs) I'm not going in. Yeah. They don't need me at all. There's not a lick of music up there and they got it all nailed down. (laughs) And that is the, maybe the only church setting you've ever gone into that couldn't use your help and and didn't kind of need your help. Right. Usually I go in and they're like, "Well, you teach you teach a, a music at the university level?" Yeah. Get on the board immediately. And they don't know me, you know, like Exactly. <laughs> right. I could, I could be anybody. One of the angles that was not really explored at all on the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which by the way, did you listen to that series? I did. I've listened to that yeah. whole series. One of the things that they didn't talk about is the music culture at Mars Hill. Yeah. There are two really interesting aspects. I'll just mention brief- briefly and see if you have any thoughts on them. One is the the sort of ethnic music angle. There is a story about when they opened up a campus in South Seattle in a very racially mixed area. And at first they empowered this guy to sort of do his things, black male, you know, steeped in hip hop and gospel music. And as time went on, basically he got the message from Driscoll. We have a brand here and all of our churches play white kid indie rock, essentially. So that's one angle. The other is a really interesting sort of almost economic angle, which is that Mark figured out how to leverage these cool bands uh, like Deep Sea Diver, who are now finally having their day in the sun, getting some some pretty significant indie rock success on their third record. But Jessica, who who sings and plays guitar, she happens to be maybe my favorite guitarist. Uh, but she was in Beck's band. She was in The Shins. Oh, yeah. She had all this credibility at the time during Mars Hill. And, right. And like... She and others like her, other than Dustin Kensrue, who was actually on staff, but Chad from King's Kaleidoscope, all these guys were uh, the Emory guys. They were basically leveraged for Mark to make a half a million to a million dollars a year. They were paid nothing, and they lent all this coolness factor to yeah. this church that was just spiritually abusing left and right. And they didn't get paid for it either. Yeah, that's amazing. So I I think that stuff is really interesting. And so it's kind of related to this feeling of pressure that a musician can feel accomplished in any of the, whether it's the sacred music, choral music stuff, or the pop music stuff. They need us and we feel it. Yeah. Well, there might even be a deeper angle to to get into on that front, which is that churches need the kind of cultural clout that they don't often have. And if you can right. have someone who has some, you know, an actor, like, you know, if Justin Bieber comes to yep, your church, a celebrity, yeah, that means something. Right. And so, so what the celebrity offers is this 
cultural cachet, which the church needs. And what do they get back? But that's also playing. It's also happening when you're looking at multiracial congregations. You know, what are you putting on the main page of your church? Is there right. is there the one African-American member of your congregation Always. like there? Yeah. Sure. And, and you know, I'm sure that that person goes, oh, look, I'm on the front page, but also like. Maybe they do. <laughs> or maybe or yeah. maybe they're like, you know, like I have I have this dear friend who has been on the on the. Um, you know, on, on the marketing materials for an organization I'm involved with. And, and she said to me, I just can't wait till they retire that picture because it's been there over and over and over again. And, yeah. and more important, here's another thing, you know, you'll go into a church and you'll see that maybe the congregation is racially mixed and you go, Oh good. This church looks like it's community, but everything about the service is exactly the same as every other white service that you've been in. And yep. you go, how is their particular experience of life being reflected in this worship experience or are they just you know and that's complicated i can't unpack that but you know that well i'll unpack it a little bit and listeners know how often i can make things about spiritual abuse because it's my own research but uh, it didn't make it onto the final spiritual abuse scale but there was an item because it came out of the qualitative literature of interview literature with people around spiritual abuse it made it on the the main the big original survey of exclusively hearing cultural sort of items referenced in sermons and other teachings that don't apply to my group my culture uh-huh. right right and and mm-hmm. that is the experience that i've heard a lot of especially african american christians mention about their time in white churches i wonder how true it is it'd be interesting to see how that has shifted for Asian American Christians yeah. and indigenous Christians. That's a smaller group and harder to, you know, you have to seek that stuff out more. But that idea that essentially it's it's one way, it can be one way of sort of implicitly letting people know who runs the show and who this is for. Right. Uh, and then a black Christian might be like, that I'm going to go back to my black church. Like, well, it's right. just, you know, I'm not really wanted here. I, I, they want me for the photos, but they don't, and, you know, and this of course is not an exclusively Christian problem. No. In the opera industry, opera has had its reckoning recently, just like all the other cultural industries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's this rush time, Peter. Well, I had been waiting for opera <laughs> to have its reckoning. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, uh, it, you know, you're you're joking, but it's true. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but the rush, there's this huge rush. Well, let's get everybody on these boards and let's like hire. And so there, you know, suddenly there's a huge sea change. But it's not a question of like who you let on your board. It's like what do you do when they get there? Like, do you let them tell you the truth? Do you make a space for them to actually like right. say what they what their experience tells them, or are you just like Great. Now we have your name on the board and we'll call you next year, you know. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. And there, you know, we don't, we don't have to get into it, but there is really interesting scholarship around the overlap between things like, quote unquote, Christian worldview resources. Uh, this is actually it's an episode I plan to do in the future because a book just came out where uh, this I believe he's a historian, might be a sociologist, sort of analyzed a bunch of this popular Christian worldview, these resources from the 90s and aughts and, and whatnot within evangelicalism, and then compared them to a source, essentially a, a white supremacist worldview. Oh. 
and found surprising overlap. overlap. Yeah, overlap. And, and, you know, that's not to say that the people who loved Francis Schaeffer's How Shall We Then Live and tried to apply his worldview discussion to their lives understood that what they were doing was white supremacy or, or you know, flaked with white supremacy. Of course, it's not – that is not an overt knowledgeable thing, but – if it's true that the talking points are similar and you're a black Christian in that church, yeah. you're going to experience it the same way because it's, it's the same thing. Right. So it's, you know, it's the intent versus outcome kind of a thing, right? So yeah. the outcome might still be the same for someone. Sure. Okay. So where in that story, what did you start serving as music band leader and music teacher at the King's Academy in Sunnyvale, California, uh, between the years of 95 and 2001, when I was attending Oh my gosh. Wow. My high school experience, I I, I lived in Redding, which is, you know, not a small town, but but a smaller town. Smaller. And my experience of classical music in that area area was was transformative. Hmm. I I love jazz, and I love R&B, and I love... Lots of different kinds of music, but I've never been a like listen to pop radio kind of guy. I've always been really interested in classical music. I was the kid who would like, you know, put on Strauss's Death and Transfiguration in the car and just crank it in my truck. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really, I didn't really care. Oh, I didn't you really were, care. Oh, you were a people, virgin. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, uh, I was intersecting uh, um, with this conversation in interesting ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And I, I, I have no problem embarrassing my own children in that way, although they've all become musicians on in their own right. Um, yeah. Yeah. there was probably a little bit of snobbery in me becoming a music, a classical musician. It was like something that my friends didn't understand. And, and in order for me to like access it in the, at the high school level, I had my parents, you know, my father, God bless him, would drive me to voice lessons in San Francisco. It's like a four hour drive. I'd leave school early, take four hour drive, take an hour voice lesson with a wonderful teacher in San Francisco and then four hours back. Oh my goodness. On the weekends. Um, Yeah. 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 Sometimes during, sometimes I'd get out of school early. Sometimes it'd be on the oh weekends and it cost a fortune. And, uh, yeah. you know, I went to, um, the university of California, Santa Barbara summer opera program and, 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 uh, studied arias and all that stuff. And so I, I had every intention of becoming a, an opera singer. And so when I went to Peabody and studied with this wonderful baritone, uh, John Shirley quirk, we would talk about what the music meant and not how to fix my voice. And it became clear after a number of years of kind of trying to make my, well, not a number of years, actually, it became clear in the first semester and a half at Peabody that I didn't have an instrument that was going to sustain me through a career. And I was spending all my time talking to composers and conductors. And I was like, you know, actually, I should listen to this. I'm in the wrong end of this. (laughs) I should be on the other side of the footlights where I can really like think about things and turn them over and edit. And so I decided I'm going to go into composing because I had this compositional bug since I was in middle school. 
And I decided I'll transfer to the San Francisco Conservatory. I'll study with a great teacher and I'll take voice lessons on the side to kind of keep it going. So I was in a number of operas and I studied with this wonderful, he's a, I consider him a friend and a mentor now, uh, David Conti, who I just, you know, I looked at the faculty at the San Francisco Conservatory and I listened to all their music. And when I heard David's music, I thought, if somebody can write like that, I'm going to get along with them. And I want them to teach me how to do that. So I did. And then, of course, you graduate and then you go, well, now what? (laughs) And I had this experience in the evangelical world. I think there was a a relative of the church that I had been attending, the one that closed down, that had been instrumental in founding the school that you went to. Mm -hmm. And they had an opening and I went down there and I, I I was instructionally underqualified for that position, but on paper, very highly qualified for the position. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I pop into your band class, freshman or sophomore year of high school. I'm playing bass guitar. Yeah. I'm like playing on sheet music. Sure. Uh, I don't know why I took this. I, I, I think your mom made you do it. I think your mom made you do it. Yeah. I had already been, so I was probably in my first band at that time playing drums. I was playing in a punk band called Permanent Holiday. And during my time in your classes, I started my high school band, Ignorant Youth, yes. originally called the 57 Heavies. Uh, because These are great band names, by I the know, way. Because three out of four <laughs> of us were overweight. And uh, so anyway, I actually joined that band. They had started it without me. And then, of course, typical Dan fashion, I became the lead singer and songwriter. Because what else would I have been okay with? So I'm, I'm going to come back to high school, but I wanted yeah. to connect you to a college professor. So my yeah. favorite professor at Cal Poly, which is the, the school I went to for three years before dropping out to do Sherwood, my favorite professor was Ken Walker. He, I had him my very first semester for intro to philosophy. He was in the philosophy faculty. I almost switched to English. I took ethics with Ken Walker and stayed in philosophy. And uh, really just a very impactful guy. I, I've, I've told stories about him on here before. The one I've probably told the most is that I one time asked him in an office hours, like as I'm being challenged in all these aspects of my faith, you know, this is the, my original faith deconstruction happened as a college freshman in a philosophy program at a state Well, that'll school. do it, won't it? That'll do it. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people get it at Bible college or seminary. I just was like, let's just go straight to a secular philosophy <laughs> That's program. Right. That's right. See how that goes. Skip, skip the middleman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he said, you know, I said, am I going to lose my faith? He's like, you're probably not going to lose it, but it's going to be really different than it is to you now. Yeah. And that ended up being true. But the other th- the reason I bring him up here is not because of that. It's because he always gave me so much shit for being a rock musician. His uh-huh. whole his whole bit was like this is not music, you know, why aren't you using your re- your obvious talents to write genuinely beautiful music? And it became a, a like it was like a 50% joke, 50% truth kind of a thing for him. And when I would see him, like when Sherwood started doing well and occasionally I'd run into him, you know, if we were back in Cal Poly, back in San Luis Obispo or whatever, like he would still give me a hard time about it, even if we were like getting coffee or something. And I always thought that that was really funny and that like it always bit a little bit too. Yeah, sure. And so I just kind of wanted to like, I just think it's funny that two of the more formative, and I'm going to get to why you were formative for me in a minute, <laughs> but that two of the more, you know, the five or six sort of formative 
teachers that I can point to from that crucial period of like 16 to 21 where my brain is really forming. I'm starting to become an adult. Two of them were like very much in this world of high music, you know, classical opera, choral music and all that. Sure. And uh, that like, what are the chances of that? Yeah, and then well, I go and become a fucking emo pop songwriter. Like, I gotta I do put, the worst, most opposite thing. I, I gotta say though, Dan, I, I, I mean, I don't know to what extent he was joking, but that's nonsense. The things that are happening in so-called art music are totally different, and in all, in another way, the same. Mm-hmm. And music is human expression, and there, it's also a function of culture to denigrate a whole genre of music as being beneath. I mean, I mean, like what you're saying basically is it's not this, this particular kind of music is not worth your time. You are wasting your intellect on that. And I just think mm-hmm. that's preposterous. I'm, you know, I, at, at a time, there was a time when I was such a snob, I might've agreed with that, but I absolutely don't now. Yeah. Um, Maybe if that, back if that then would you have agreed? I don't think so. I would okay. like to think I was a little more aware but than that. But if, if that prodded you as yeah. a, as like if you were like like I you know screw you I'm going to do it anyway. Then great. I think it did. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I, and Maybe I that's what was much, happening. And I wonder how much he knew that that might be happening. I you know I'm I have made peace with it now because <laughs> now I can I can go straight from a 90 minute conversation you know with a clinical psychologist or theologian or philosopher about, you know, like running my brain at, you know, 6,000 RPMs for an hour and a half with a great mind and then turn that off and just like fire up some rancid or bad religion. And I, I realize that there it's okay to have both. (laughs) It is. It's absolutely, it's in a way it's sort of essential to have, to have both. Yeah. Another way to think about that, that, you know, oh, this music is beneath you. How would we determine what music is worth doing and what's not? Who would decide that? That's a great what, question. You know, and, and also, if, if you, Dan, were trying to prove, no, what I have is worthwhile, how many, how, what would success look like? How would you prove that what you're doing is, you know, worth mm-hmm. his <laughs> worth, worth this, this person's well, the, yeah, approval. The, the, the real, like a Grammy, the, would that be it? Like, or would right. that be too bougie no. for, yeah. oh, that'd be too bougie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that like, you know, you know what, Peter, you're right. Classical music in all its forms is just a tool of the, uh, white supremacist patriarchy <laughs> and it should be, is that what I said? Dismantled. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of friends who would absolutely agree with you that I, that I am I'm dear friends with, but, uh, uh I, no, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I, I, I am one of those people who think that classical music is wonderful and deeply meaningful and important. And if you don't like it, I'm totally cool. Okay, well, I do. I'm excited to in the second half of our conversation to get to some of the stuff that does come up around classical music because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff about faith, about deconstruction. Oh, yeah. And we chatted a little bit about that on the phone, but I I want to make sure to kind of wrap up this high school experience. So yeah, one interaction has stuck with me ever since. So it was junior or senior year for me. It must have been my junior year because I think you left after that. So I was student body vice president and, you know, felt like I had a little bit of leeway around campus, big man on campus. So there was a all school assembly and a guy was pitching. He was doing an advertisement for one of these. I think it was yeah. a choir of the fire, a big 
teen youth, a big youth conference at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. So it holds like 40,000 people. Uh-huh. And I was just like, there are a couple things about this that are not sitting right with me. I don't really know how to say it, but I'm going to leave right now because I'm the student body vice president. <laughs> who's going to care? Yeah. And your band room is just just down the the hall from the gym. Yeah. And I see that you're in there. So I walk in and I sit down and I am like, Mr. Hilliard, can I just tell you, you know, I don't I don't want to be in there. I don't this feels weird to me. And then do you remember do you remember what you said to me? No. Uh was I supposed to be in this assembly? <laughs> I think you were theoretically supposed to be in there. And, oh geez, and, and we so were I both noticed, playing hooky. <laughs> yes. Well that was the most important that was the first important uh-huh. aspect. Okay, good. Okay, I'm, so you see, so I led you off in this direction of, of uh miscreancy and debauchery, right? It, yes, like you that's... started it. Yep. Okay. Uh you you contributed early on. But so you basically said, you know, I I don't remember your exact words, but you basically said like I don't think that that conference, that that teen mania, whatever it is, acquire the fire thing. I don't think that that represents Christianity. Like, <laughs> I think that that is essentially not really Christian, that it is like emotional manipulation. It's like, it's not what the gospel is about. And I was like, what the fuck, <laughs> you know? And, and you had articulated it and I was like, whoa, I know that Mr. Hilliard is a Christian, and I know that he thinks about this stuff seriously. And you you gave me permission to to in that moment start to go, oh, is there some daylight between right. my actual faith and white evangelicalism, what I would now call it. But I didn't have the word for it then. Hmm. Right. Of this particular sort of missions approach of, you know, uh, the kind of theology where uh, a soul saved is a dollar in the bank and that's the only dollar in the right. bank. And also this kind of like sort of hyper emotional youth ministry stuff that also probably made people a shit ton of money. And we didn't know exactly what was going on there. And it was incredible. It's one of the moments that sticks with me kind of from those teen years. I think it's really important uh, for adults to disambiguate whatever is real about Christianity from the practice of it, Hmm. because your children and the students and the young people that you encounter have a very, they're very attuned to nonsense. And some, some of the things that they identify as nonsense, they just don't understand yet, but they also can see through people really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can spot a phony. And if you say, no, 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 everything on the front of this is real and legitimate. They know better. <laughs> you know, they know you knew better. You could tell. Yeah, and I think the later high school years that was that was clearer. Let's take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk about your sort of personal deconstruction coming out of more of these evangelical spaces uh as well as getting into some of the nuggets that you talk about some of these classical composers and the mm. way that they were dealing with faith and what we might call deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, in a way that most of us are unfamiliar with because we don't know that history. If you'd like more, you have permission. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. 
patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them, as well as access to the patron only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, it's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. Well, Peter, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I think that that might be my all time record of sort of most self-indulgent autobiography I've allowed myself to get into <laughs> at least in one half of an episode. So I'm going to try and uh, veer away from that in this second half and let you speak more and, and hear more of your story and insights. One of the things you, you told me uh, on a phone call the other day is that your favorite Christian artist is Johann Sebastian Bach. What, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I was never really drawn to, to making music that is explicitly Christian. And I think at the, at the beginning of my time as a composer, I was kind of bored by a lot of Christian music. It seemed to me like a, a watered down version of music that I had already heard elsewhere done better. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I also was not terribly interested in uh, circumscribing my musical output by topic. Like <laughs> everything I do will be on this topic it felt right. it felt like kind of exclusive and now i think of it in a different way it's almost like i'm not sure that i believe in secular music like i'm not sure that it exists interesting what do you mean by um, that? <laughs> <laughs> well in many ways music is it operates it has the same kind of of power as as faith in a lot of ways and that's why it manifests itself like faith in many ways i think it's because making music is a very human thing to do and faith is also a very human thing to do when you make art when you're making music you are exercising your humanity which is a gift of god and music is a gift of god and so, uh, like any time music is being made, even bad music, there is something sacred happening. Now, I, I, if you push me on that, I'm not going to be able to defend that all the way out to, <laughs> to, to the end. But I guess what, what I mean in, in some way is that the Christian music, the music on topics of faith that is most meaningful to me comes out of a classical tradition and is often written and performed by people who are not particularly faithful themselves. Bach is this exception that everyone brings out. You know, I had a book given to me as a kid. It was like the spiritual lives of the great composers. And you're looking at <laughs> it was looking like 20 this. pages. No, 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 it was actually quite thick. And now that I know yeah. more about these composers, I know that it was most of it was nonsense. You know, Beethoven's yeah. spiritual life is certainly not anything you might want to emulate, you know, yeah. um, and uh, I guess if you're going to if you're going to say I'm only going to listen to composers who have a spotless moral record, boy, you're going to have a super short playlist and you're actually going to eliminate a lot of really meaningful music. 
Um, sacred music. Meaningful sacred music, exactly. Yeah. And I think I, at one point I might have been bothered by that when I was a little more um, hidebound in my understanding of faith. I might have gone, gosh, it's too bad that Beethoven wasn't more of a, a Orthodox Christian or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or it's too bad that Verdi wasn't so much of a Christian. And now I, I look at it differently and I think about these composers are interacting in many cases with a very old text and their distance from the center of Christian practice in their time enables them to say something more profound and meaningful because they see it with new eyes. Bach is so committed to glorifying God, but he does it in a way that I think people don't realize is sort of perverse. Uh, <laughs> um, Bach is so such a frustrated man. He was so misunderstood, even in his own time, by his parishioners and his children. And after he had put out a couple of, of years of, of cantata cycles for use in the church, he stopped writing them. And I think it was because he, he was getting nothing but pushback from people around him. So the last works of Bach are meaningful in part because they, are, they have so much of Bach's disappointment and anger built into them. Like the B minor mass, which he never heard completed, and he was writing on spec to try to get a better job at a, you know, with a local prince or king or something. And he wrote this massive work that he never heard. It's one of the towering pieces of, of Western culture. I hear Bach sort of swinging for the fences intellectually in this, in this attempt to mean something against all evidence to the contrary that his life meant something, you know? Hmm. And so it's in that humanity that we actually find something worth looking at. Some of the most complex pieces of Western music are, are Bach's last pieces, his the, the Art of the Fugue and a Musical Offering. And both of those pieces involve his son, Carl Philip Emanuel. The Art of the Fugue is this massive compendium that Bach was working on when he died of like all the ways that fugues can go. And so, you know, there's a fugue in there that, that you, it's a double fugue. It's a really complicated form. It's like row, row, row your boat, except mm -hmm. that when the second part comes in, it has to come in a fifth higher. And then it has to act in a particular way. There's all these rules. And the fugue Bach is could, like it, the hardest thing to write. Fugue is the hardest thing. Yeah. You have to learn it in your composition major. And you learn it basically so that when you turn in your final project, you go, this was impossible. Bach has already done all this. When, you know, people stop writing them after Bach because what else are you going to do? Just, we, all, we just have to give up. So he's writing this and some of them, you know, there's a double fugue that, that you can also play upside down. And it works perfectly. Or, or there's some counterpoint in there where the top voice, the right hand is playing a melody that's really beautiful and kind of convoluted and the left hand is playing it upside down and at half speed.
and it all works out. Bach didn't specify any instruments, so he he was doing it as a sort of theoretical exercise, and he had gone completely blind, uh, profoundly blind at the end of his life. And so his son, Carl Philip Emanuel, was writing down everything that he was doing. And there's a one of these fugues at the end in this half finished fugue in the script of Carl Philip Emanuel. It says underneath, at this point where the composer was writing his own name, B-A-C-H, and H in German is B, and B is B flat. So he's writing his own name in the counter subject, the composer died. So sort of, I mean, he didn't like keel over while writing that, yeah. but like this, at this point, the composer did not finish the work. So you don't want to get too sentimental about things, but this is a rather dry piece of music. Uh-huh. You know, as a composer, you, you look at it so that you can go, golly, somebody did that. That's pretty spectacular. It's like a calculus textbook or uh-huh. some advanced physics proof that you learn if you're studying advanced mathematics to show you how to do advanced mathematics. That's exactly it's what it not is. not Ave Maria, right? It's That's not, right. Right. Okay. That's right. And so, and there's a European modernist mindset that loves the math of that piece so much that that's itself a sort of self, uh, what is it? Uh, the math of it is, a is, is what validates it. Mm-hmm. Right. We're, we love this because it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Nothing's perfect. Right. Um, what makes the piece feel real and, and makes you like grabs your soul is that this perfection is wrapped up in, in a feeling of, of impotence and, you know, like Bach was spinning his wheels hmm. and his son, who's, who's writing this and sitting at his side, Carl Philip Emanuel, who would later write his obituary and was like the, the kid who did the right thing and sort of stayed with dad at the end. He was not the golden boy of the family. The older brother, Wilhelm Friedman was the one, the whole family let put their hopes on and hmm. Bach the elder Bach got the older son out of a bunch of jams because he get, kept getting these royal appointments and then flaking on them. And dad had to, it absolutely is. And so Carl Philip Emanuel, who is the true genius of the family, like indisputably Carl Philip Emanuel of Bach's four famous composer sons is the one who really set off the next thing in music. And he's in there. Right. I can just imagine being in the room and watching, <laughs> watching dad say, okay, then B flat and then uh, the lower C sharp, hearing it all in his head and working out this complicated. And then his son writing it down. There must have been that that could not have been a, a completely benign experience to be yeah, as he's spelling <laughs> out his name. Yeah. Right. Right. And so Bach, who, who wrote J.J., Jesu Juve, Jesus Help Me, at the beginning of every piece, and at the end of every piece, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, it is sort of stupid for us to look at a story like that and go, oh, look how pious he was. If only I could be that pious. That's not the lesson of Bach. The lesson of Bach is like he thought that this perfection was possible, and he wanted to aim for it with every piece to the glory of God, and what he got back in return was crickets. Like hmm. the people in his area did not understand him. Even his own children thought his music was, was backwards and it was forgotten for 50 years after his death. So these last pieces of Bach are not even written to be performed. They're just like one last swing at the fence of immortality Yeah, because he thinks it will please God to do it. 
his well, humanity. Can we throw a little, you know, existential philosophy and psychology in the mix too, and and say he's Please. he's rubbing up against his finitude and Absolutely. his mortality. I mean, I love this thing you said. His music is like one, you know, it, it's a continual grasp against all evidence that his life is actually meaningless. Right. In some sense, that is spirituality and religion. Uh, yes. It, it's literally, it is one of the definitions I recently found on like a well-regarded psychological website that spirituality is basically just, it's anything about, you know, deep meaning, close connection with others. It is sort of anything that suggests that our life is meaningful is, uh-huh. is really one way of saying it. Not everybody would be comfortable calling their own meaning making spirituality because terms change. But if I could define spirituality that way, then then this kind of music is fully fits within that. Well, yes. And every time I can think of where music just knocked me over, where I, I, I left a, a sort of changed person, I, you know, you're a shell of a person after you get out of a performance. Mm-hmm. They were all places where something about the piece told me that other people had been through what I had been through and that that could be beautiful. Sadly, when you talk about classical music these days, there's an idea that there's this really good music. And if you're smart enough, you can unlock it and understand it. And that does a disservice to Mm -hmm. the music and the experience of the music. I'll give you another example. Brahms, Johannes Brahms. Another deeply conflicted person, another person who's not what we would call today very well self-actualized, a very strong success <laughs> as a young person, um, as a young person had had a you know a, a big big success and had a high people said effeminate voice that he was embarrassed about. So as soon as he was able to, he kind of bulked up and grew a beard and like artificially graveled up his voice a little bit to, to overcome Elizabeth that. Holmes treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As a teenager, he was playing in brothels at night while taking harmony lessons in the daytime. So he's got this kind of like bifurcated, wants to be a part of, of like earthy, real middle Germany and also wants to talk the language of Palestrina. And his whole life is this back and forth. He goes to Dusseldorf on a tour and meets uh, Robert Schumann, kind of finds him in the phone book and knocks on the door, opens the door. Is Schumann, Schumann says, oh, uh, come on in. And we don't know this. I mean, Brahms had no way of knowing this, but Schumann was about to to have a mental break that would end his life and his career. He would end spend the rest of his life in an asylum. This was one of his last healthy days. And, you know, 18, uh, I don't know how old he was, 20 years old. Brahms goes in and they say, well, play something for us. And so Brahms plays, plays the piano and, and Schumann comes out of retirement to write like one last review where he says, you know, uh, this is the next Beethoven. And poor Brahms is like, what do you mean I'm the next Beethoven? It's like saying you're the next, you know, Michael Jordan, right? Or, right. Yeah, what are you, you going to do? So he's crippled with anxiety. He loves all these old things. He f- wants to contribute, but he feels the weight 
of Beethoven. He feels the weight of Bach on it. How do you begin? It's like a filmmaker who wants to make gritty, modern, you know, urban TikTok videos and YouTube videos that reach a billion people and wants to direct music videos for the, you know, and then someone's like, you're the next Spielberg. And now he's got to make like mannered historical. It feels like I need to make mannered historical pieces that win Oscars. But I really want to be Steven Soderbergh making shoestring budget thrillers. It's it's exactly what it's like. And you also need trans inmates. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, you well, you got to pick one or you got to go one for for them every other or, you know, it's that. But you also have to have the freedom to fail. Right. Like. Like you, yeah. you have to be able to, you have to be able to like swing and miss a bunch of times before you figure out how to do it. Yeah. And then Schumann goes into the asylum and he has this kind of fraught relationship with Clara. We don't know how, how sexual that relationship was because they destroyed all of their letters, but Brahms, his Schumann dies and, his, and then, and then Brahms's mother dies and he starts to write a requiem. And this requiem, he calls ein deutsches requiem, or a German requiem, and he throws out the entire Latin text of the requiem and starts over again with all German texts that he has chosen from the Bible from memory. So Brahms is not a not a, a churchgoer by any means. He's one of these romantics who find, like let me walk in the woods and that's where I'll find God. And he's, on a, he's coming from the outside, as you were saying, yes, seeing it with exactly. new eyes. Yeah, right. So he comes in with the idea that he's going to completely rethink what a requiem can be. And he had uh, two Lutheran Bibles. Brahms liked to collect old things, so he had these Bibles on his bedstand, and he's told someone he, he could reach in the dark and grab a the book that he wanted. He knew the Bible and he chose from memory these texts. The first text he chose is blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Mm-hmm. And then switches directly to Psalms, Psalm 126, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weeps bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with them. Well, the text that he threw out is this Latin text, Day of Wrath, you know, where wow. uh, you're begging God to, to, to release the souls of the dead to heaven. And then at the Shit. end, you go, you yeah. go, please, please also release me because I don't know how I'm going to do either. Brahms doesn't even bring up the dead person, really, huh. until the very end of the piece where he has revelation in this passage, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Now, we do the Brahms Requiem in church all the time, right? Like, it's all Bible verses. The original audience was very disturbed that Jesus does not appear. And in the first performance, they added, I know that my Redeemer liveth from Handel's Messiah in the middle, just to, like, make sure Jesus shows up in the piece. Yeah. I I got, you know, actually, you 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 can see this. You need to tell me, Peter, that even in the era of the great, classical church music that Christians were nervous if you didn't frame things in just the right way to keep their anxieties at bay? You mean to tell me that? I will will go further. I, I think I would almost go so far as to say there is no religious masterpiece, you know, no sacred music in classic in the classical world that was immediately received well 
it, no, no masterpieces that were immediately received well by their first audiences. Mm. The better they are, the more the first audience was super confused and, and, and uh, conflicted about it. Uh, so why, why, are we, why are we drawn so strongly to these pieces? Why do they feel so... St- I'll, I'll tell you another story that, that I think might make this clear. I found this Brahms Requiem when I was in high school. I went to this University of California, Santa Barbara, and uh, I didn't eat lunch one day or something. I saved up my money. I went to the bookstore and they had a, a full score of this. I bought it and I thought, well, I'm going to be a baritone. This is a big baritone solo in this piece. I've taken three years of high school German. So like, maybe I can learn this. So I looked at it and I got to say, you know, I was like, well, that's pretty. And I didn't get it. Years and years go by. And I'll never forget this. I, I attended a concert. My friends are, I'm really connected with a bunch of singers in Philly and my friends were in this professional choir. And I thought, well, that's fun. I'll I'll go and I'll support my friends and I'll bring my son with me who was at that time, I think 11 or 12, something like that. So we go down to this church in Philly and I think there were more people on the platform than there were in the, in the audience. I know what that's like from the early touring days. (laughs) That's right. So, but on the other hand, you got people who really want to be there. So that's good. So, so you're, we got there early and we heard this musicologist come out and give a rather dry lecture about this particular work. And I'm sitting there and they started singing and I, I don't know how to, how to describe it. It was like I was experiencing it for the first time. My German was better. That's one thing. So I could actually catch more of what they were saying. My knowledge of the Bible was better. So I'm listening and I'm like, well, that's from first Peter, but then he is not, he's left out this passage, which says something he doesn't want to say. He's just ignored this and put it against this passage just from a totally different part of the Bible. You know, that's a, a, a hermeneutical choice, <laughs> you know, he's got yeah. so much agricultural imagery. What does that mean? Why isn't God such a, why isn't God really in this? What did Brahms mean by that? So the text is saying something to me. And then I knew more about, about Schumann and I knew more about Beethoven and I knew more about Brahms and I could hear him like playing in Beethoven's world and in Schumann's world. And I could hear him trying to live up to the the mantle, Yeah, Yeah. Uh, but not sound like them so much that it sounds like he's, you know, imitating them. Right. He's trying to live in that world and say something in this very pregnant and full German romantic language. And I can feel his, his nervousness in the, the trying so hard to, to catch all of that. But I think the thing that had changed so most drastically for me was that when I first heard this piece, I was 19 and I had not experienced any significant loss in my life. And by the time I heard this piece in this one performance, people I loved had died. And so the idea, selig sind sie da leid tragen, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. And the, the fact that Brahms has no violins in the first, saw violas, viola is the highest string instrument, and it t- takes so long to get this idea out. It's, you feel this like warmth come across you and this feeling like 
Blessed are you, Peter, sitting there. Hmm. You've mourned, but you but you'll be comforted. Uh, life is is terribly, terribly sad. But in this particular decoration of time, as the piece begins and the piece is until it ends and, and goes back to being a set of instructions on a page for this period of time, Brahms is decorating the molecules, the vibrations of the air to tell me it's going to be okay. I've been here too. And it's, it's going to, this, this is beautiful. It's so sad, but it's also beautiful. And I'm going to leave out a bunch of this story because I want to focus right now on you who are here mourning. So the piece ends and I turn to my son who's sitting to my right and I said, what did you think? And he said, it was beautiful, but I didn't understand it. Right. And a man behind me tapped me on the shoulder and he was wearing a clerical collar. I turned around and I saw, uh, he said, thank you for bringing your son here. He was thinking of it in terms of like passing on the, this music right. to the next generation. He said, you yeah, know, if you don't, if you don't take your kids to these things, when well, nobody will know these. And I said, you know, yeah, well, we're a weird family. We go do this stuff all the time. But I thought I got to really thinking about that. I thought, wow, you know, I do music all day long. Like I don't think about anything else. I don't golf. You know, I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a hobby. It took me 20 years to get to the place in my life where my humanity and Brahms's humanity could catch fire in some way. What hope is there for people who aren't like me? <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I say that not because I want everybody to go out and like take German, but more of a way of just kind of saying all of these beautiful things that exist from the past, all of the wisdom of the dead, it exists to help you answer the hardest questions that, that you encounter. What, why, why is it so hard to be a human? <laughs> right. And there's all these brilliant and beautiful people who have tried tried in some way or another to answer that question, but it takes an investment of your time to even begin to get to the place where you can understand their language enough to let them talk to you. Yeah. But, but not be in the position where you're like, well, if you don't understand this, you must not be very smart. And I think that's where classical music starts to get into that problem. There is a depth of experience. So this has been interesting as I, become a psychologist is one of the things that has really risen in my estimation, in my, in my valuing is the raw phenomenon of humans consciously experiencing the world. Hmm. And we, I think, again, it's a very American thing to think very instrumentally about the world. What is uh, being accomplished? What right. is being produced? What, what is tangible? And I think that that, in some sense, goes against the fundamental claim of all faith traditions and most spiritualities, which is that it's not <laughs> what we make that matters. It's, it is the being here itself. Uh -huh. It is the depth of experience. It is the, the depth of connectivity that actually matters. And so it's a welcome counterweight for me in thinking about, you know, doing, connecting with people who are older than me. And, and by the way, I don't have access to this, just like I don't have access to the conscious experience of the college kid 
who likes you have permission. Sure. And yeah. who is, I hope, hearing this stuff at a time where they can save themselves years of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you right. know, and that is its own benefit. But just like the college kid, I don't know what it's like to be 65. I don't know what it's like, what they're experiencing when they hear something I have worked on or talk with me about something I have worked on or they are learning or for that matter, a 65 year old therapy client talking to me about their life. Right. I don't have access to that. The Christian in me says the only access to that is that person and the mind of God. And if I'm going to be a Christian, then I'm going to say that the value, the full appreciation of the value of their experience lives in the mind of God. And I participate in that only tangentially. And, you know, I'm connected to that in some way, but it's a black box. I don't get to open, but Hmm. the faith proclamation is that it matters back to this idea that against whatever evidence we have that none of this matters it's the idea that that does matter. It's the claim that that matters or the, the, uh, the article of faith that that matters. And the experiences that you're talking about of, you know, when you, the experience you had of that piece of music, of that Requiem later in life that your son couldn't quite have yet, that is in a sense maybe one of the things that art does is it is a down payment on the idea that mm-hmm. this stuff does matter. It, yes. If only in the mind of God, whatever that means. Right. You know? What you have to do is continually resist the idea that this ephemeral thing is quantifiable. It, yeah, it's not. You want to go, what does... A good art, by the way, doesn't, doesn't mean one thing. If it means one thing, it's quite bad art. <laughs> yes. It's propaganda or bad art. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the what what makes it change is the the mind of the person who is, is experiencing it, you know, if all humanity were to die all of a sudden, if there were no more humans on earth, box music is worthless. It doesn't mean anything as an abstract concept. Well, you know, I'll wrap this into sort of one, one last big idea I had that I wanted to run by you, which is this idea of coming from the outside and maybe, and maybe the connective tissue here is that the people doing it for the love, even though they're making explicitly sacred music, they are outside the, the main Christian apparatus. Yeah. So I have a kind of a psychological theory on the fly and I want to see what you think. Cause I think you're right that oftentimes the best pieces of Christian art are coming in some sense from the outside. I wonder if it's true in other religious traditions. I have no idea. So if we can connect it to this idea that what we are reaching for when we are aiming for transcendent art is we are reaching for some proof that our lives are not meaningless and that perhaps those on the inside don't have that fear because as much of that fear or rather they have subsumed that fear into an unearned certainty that (laughs) that they're in and that that unearned certainty is a salve a sa is it salve or salve 
I don't know. I've never heard anyone you know, say it. People, so uh, it is a it is a cream a balm. It is a balm <laughs> for their deep fear that life is in fact meaningless. But they they have in a sense papered over it with this cheap grace, cheap certainty, and that what an outsider lacks is that cheap flimsy certainty. And so they have to go into the wilderness and they have to try and find evidence that life is meaningful. And just like kind of bad, often tumultuous lives and a lot of suffering often produces great art. That's kind of a truism that I, I don't know. I think there's evidence for that. You could tell me if you disagree. Uh, perhaps that something like that is at play with these, they lack that smugness. And then in the aggregate, you get enough people lacking the smugness and enough people with the smugness. Yeah. And the Stephen Curtis Chapmans are eventually going to just write bullshit. And the Leonard Cohens, who are still searching, are going to keep churning out gold. Uh, and maybe that's a, a bad example. I should make it clear. I don't think that the only meaningful classical music is super dark and weepy either. Like, no, I, I'm not. I, I think, don't think that. I think also. I don't think you're saying that. No, but I mean, we should also point out that, like, you know, comic opera is funny because we're seeing the absurdity of life made beautiful as well, and we are allowed to laugh at how stupid everything is. Mm -hmm. And but but there's something ennobling about the way that the music has taken such care to be so beautiful and unexpected in the face of such lunacy, right? Like the music is undeservedly beautiful in the context that we're listening to it. And that's the mm. joy of, of listening to a comic opera. Uh, so it's, there's a broad swath of experience and I'm not going to comment on Stephen Curtis Chapman. I like that Christmas album as much as, any, <laughs> as anybody. Uh, but I, I think, I think there's a danger in the outsider approach, they they are there's no sacred cows to right. to avoid slaughtering, and also many of those people are on their own sort of of fraught spiritual journey. They don't see the a distinction for sacred music. People who try to write in the box write sacred music that that God will like and won't offend anybody have eliminated a lot of interesting choices you know, off the, off the table. Whereas people like Verdi who despised the church because of things that had happened to him can write sacred music that is really immediate because his goal is always being immediate. He always wants to say the thing that, that pops the most and adds fire to the words the most. Uh, you winced when we were talking about the original Latin text of the Requiem. And I, I sometimes feel that way too, because it's all about this fire and hell and brimstone. And you yeah. come at that really, you know, you, you've been talking about spiritual trauma and you've been researching that. And this is like right in the, in the center of what's most uncomfortable for you about Christian theology, right? Yeah. This idea that, that you have to like pay with torture for sins, right? For mm -hmm. eternity. And I, I don't need to agree with the theology of a passage to find meaning in it. I find that problematic as well. The Verity's Requiem, for example, is always an absolute knockout to me, not despite those ideas, but because of them. You know, the, the text for the DSE Ray comes from the 13th century. We don't know who wrote it. The later part of the Requiem is from earlier, like the 6th or 7th century. These are times when your life was probably going to be brief and unpleasant. 
Yeah. Right. And if you're talking about, about life and death and you look around the world at your world and you see nothing but injustice and horrible things happening and you're like, how could this be it? How, how can this be all there is? Surely God wants to make all of that right after death because yeah. it's not happening here. Yep. And then if you're a thinking person, the next step is, gee, where would I be there? Right. Where, how, where would I fit in there? Because I think God probably has a standard and I may not be fitting that standard. Now you don't have to agree with that to go, okay, sure. I, I can see how that might be a comfort to right. go, you know, like God, at least spare me. And the world is often a very unpleasant place. You know, so, uh, yeah, I don't, and I don't take any umbrage. In fact, I think I really resonate with the idea, like one of, one of the values that I try, well, I find myself doing it and then I try and remember to do it as well is taking the faith experience of sort of common people seriously and I, I almost can't even, <laughs> I can't even talk about that without revealing my elite status. I, I want to yeah, use right. the word, I want to use the word commoner or peasant. Like I, I really mean like just sort of middle of the bell curve, you know, poor to, to lower middle class people who have lived on this earth and live on this earth currently yeah. and taking their experience very seriously, seriously, and, yeah, and, and and holding it up as as sacred. So I do think that, like, even though I would never pray to God for more money, I don't think I will ever do that. I understand the farmer praying for a good harvest because they need the money. I yeah. get it, and I and I there is theological difference between what they appear to believe about God, if you could even couch it that way meaningfully, and what I believe about God. But I don't want to, I never want to discount that because that seems uh, like hubris and folly and the worst kind of elitism. And, and at the same time, I think I can even connect that to what I'm saying about this, about this deep anxiety that yeah. like, m maybe, maybe that's why I don't want to discount it is because it is coming from this authentic existential human register, we are finite creatures with finite resources. If anybody's buffered from that, it's not them. It's me. I'm yeah, the one buffered right. from my finitude sure. to sure. some degree. Of yeah. course, not. I could have a stroke any minute. But <laughs> in my day-to-day -day experience, I have a lot of buffers from that kind of finitude and that kind of, of kind of anxiety. And the and the human the natural response. You know, even, yeah, the atheists and foxholes type stuff. You know, I think there's something worth looking at closely and, right. and valuing about that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, when someone like Verdi, who is, a, who is a master of his craft and has this operatic language at his disposal, takes those ideas and they, they catch fire with the part of him that is still mourning the loss of his wife and his two children that happened very early in his career and his resentment at the church for, for not approving of his, of his second wife. There's so much fire in that music and so much um, anger and fear and rage. Mm. There's something deeply cathartic about living in that moment, letting yourself feel that. And that's another thing that art does. I mean, punk music does this too, right? It, it provides a circle 
and says a little frame inside this frame. We can tell the truth for a little bit and then we can go back to being regular people and, and, and living our, our genteel lives. But in here, we can just be honest and say, this is horrible. This is awful. I'm, I'm really angry at the world. And then we can step out and go back to being normal people again. And there's power in that. There's power in that. And there's, there's ways that classical music has acknowledged injustice and let us tell the truth about it for just a hot second before we go back to, you know, getting along. <laughs> it makes me think of a, a band that I like, uh, a new band called Capra. They're on Metal Blade Records. And, you know, they sound, for people in that world, they sound kind of like Every Time I Die and... I don't know. There, there. It's it's this kind of. I don't know how to describe metal genres correctly or hardcore genres correctly, but it's this. Um, this young woman is the singer, and mm. she has this very. I think this kind of perfect timbre to her voice. It, it's like gritty enough. It's not a flat out scream. It's got. You can hear the words she's she's kind of yelling. It's more of a yell uh, in the in the technical sense of that in a way that a lot of me without you, it's kind of like that. I don't know. You probably don't know any of these bands, Peter, but I'm speaking for, to the listeners here, but it's guttural. Yeah. And she's got to be like 23 or something. And it's a super male industry. Uh, as yeah, you might I was going to, I was going to say there's probably aren't a lot of female front. Yeah. People. Front women uh, in, in sort of in like this kind of post hardcore world. And a lot of her lyrics are about the frustration of being a woman in mm -hmm. in male-dominated spaces. And, you know, there's some interesting questions around that. In some ways, I think she's coming up at a time where that's really valued. And people yeah. are sort of swinging the, the pendulum back and listening to those voices, which I think is great. Because I think that what she's doing is kind of great. and I But I can hear something in those songs especially when i'm i'm hearing the lyrics and they're backed up by this brutal fucking onslaught <laughs> of drums bass and guitar and i don't know what it's like man to be a 25 year old frustrated young woman you know badass lyricist or in in this world i don't know what it's like but for the 3 minutes that i'm listening to this track of theirs, yeah, I get to be in that, and, yeah, and it that is what the Verdi Requiem reminded me of. Oh, of absolutely! Like, it's this guttural expression, and it's it's a it's privilege a punch. Yeah. to be on the other side of it and get to sit in that for a little while. Yeah, uh, and that is honestly, I, I think it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to punk and hardcore. Is like I do think that there is something almost populist it not in the sense of like right-wing populism that we see with trump but just in the sense of like the diy crash the yes yeah. crash the gates the diy aesthetic yeah. and like i'm gonna use the tools i have to get this out and then i as a listener have some more or less direct channel into some aspect of their experience that is unlike my experience. Sometimes the experience is so foreign that you're learning something about humanity. And sometimes it's, it's an affirmation of something you intuitively know. 
and classical musicians will tell you this, like when you get in that flow situation, even though somebody else wrote these things, you know, even though you didn't write them, you're, you feel this immense power. My choir sang the Beethoven Ninth Symphony once, which has a crazy ending, which is almost impossible to sing. Beethoven was deaf. He didn't hear it. Like he, he would have made changes if he'd heard it. Anyway, so I prepared my choir and this conductor was coming from New York to, to conduct and I had just prepared my choir. So it's the dress rehearsal. It's like the last performance where they're bringing in all the pros to play the contrabassoon and the stuff that people are on the air for one rehearsal. I got a call like an hour before the rehearsal from the conductor whose, whose car was stuck in the garage in New York. And he was like, you have to run this rehearsal. And I had not prepared, I hadn't prepared that piece for, you know, it's the nightmare, you know, your stress dream where you're like the album's supposed to come out and you haven't finished mastering it or whatever. Right. Like my composer stress dream is that the opera's about to go on and like, I haven't written it yet. And I'm like writing pages and handing them yeah, off. Yeah. This was like the, I, I think I did okay, but like, it was terrifying. And when you get to the beginning of, you know, the, the last movement of the ninth symphony and you've got a hundred people in front of you and you bring down the baton it's it's like people describe like flying a jet and you you let the throttle out and you can feel this like it, like the world ending pressure behind you mm. <laughs> as it goes forward i think that's one of the big differences between between classical music and and popular forms it classical music is so wasteful of resources it's so egregious you have dozens of people in front of you many times, each of them who has put in decades of work to be able to execute yeah. this thing. And none of them are being paid properly. Yeah. And you're, you're playing this incredible music that requires them all to be there to do it properly for people who are paying not nearly enough money. That's awful, but it's also, it also means that everybody is there because they, they love it. And that's a beautiful community thing you know something that's missing in our world i mean it's it's kind of it is its own version of the basement punk show yeah it's right. all for the love and Nobody, everybody in the audience is knows somebody in the in the yep. band you know yeah, yeah. It, it's frankly what a good church is like uh-huh you know and so i think there are connections to be made there in terms of this idea of transcendence that the thing that works about transcendence, as I understand it, in, in sort of the psych of religion stuff, is that it is taking part in something that you perceive or experience to be bigger than yourself. Yes. Now, if everybody was paid what they were worth, then they are not experiencing transcendence because it, it is transactional. It's not <laughs> right. transcendent. Right. But when you are like, no, you know what? I do this, I, I get paid something, it contributes to my family's income or whatever. I'm not being taken advantage of in an egregious way. I chose to do this, I agreed to do this. I agreed to do this, and, and when it happens right, it's an elevating experience for me. And people volunteering to play in the worship band is the same thing. Yeah, It might, like, the third chair at the Seattle Symphony... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe having the exact quality of, of therapeutic value of transcendent experience <laughs> yeah. as the third microphone at the Pentecostal church down the road totally. yeah. on Sunday morning. Like if they were my client, I would treat it equally. 
You know what I'm saying? You, yeah, I do. And actually, like, you could take this analogy really quite far if you wanted to. You know, the, the people who are at the top of these organizations, a lot of them have been getting into big trouble lately for for terrible behavior. You know, James Levine had to leave the Met in disgrace. And, and it was an open secret that he was he was doing shady things for years and years and years. And they would they would not they would not hold him accountable because of his of the importance of what he could do. Yeah. And the idea that he understood this score better than anybody else. And he had the magic key to unlock what Beethoven means, what Schoenberg means. That's exactly like the way that, that churches treat their ministers and the way that minister has that special thing about the Bible that Mm -hmm. they, they own, they, the only people who can express it. But you know, it's Uh, so funny. Like when you were talking about the rush of, that the uh, conductor gets. Oh gosh! Yeah. I I like the airplane an- analogy because it's like dry, it's you're flying this very complex piece of machinery that has immense power. You know, I I talk about this all the time. People are bored, but religion as nuclear fission, it is a nuclear power plant. It can produce the cleanest, best energy that this world has seen. It can also malfunction and destroy everything in a twenty mile radius. But the funny thing about conductors and pastors is when, and maybe podcasters, I'll be honest, when, (laughs) because I reach more people every week than almost almost any pastor in America. And, and how, and how do you get to do that? You just said, I'm going to do it. And people started to follow you, right? Like, right. But (laughs) I mean, what's interesting is I don't get the same feedback that a mega church pastor gets. And I actually think that that's good for me. No, it is for sure. Good. For the same reason you're talking about. You know, if I can see, if I could see tens of thousands of faces watching, listening, it would fuck with me in a way that this doesn't. I'm really just talking to you and I know people are going to hear it. Right. But we, we might want to think of ourselves as authors, you know, like I wrote the great novel. We're fucking translators. The novel's already there. Someone else wrote war and peace. You're translating it into English. You That's didn't right. f- write War and Peace. You didn't write the Bible or the Sermon on the Mount. You didn't write Box Requiem. Yeah, You're yeah. interpreting it. You are translating it. And, and yet- those people, and, and also with those people who wrote all those masterworks that I appreciate so much, they are themselves reinterpreting their received wisdom. Right. Do you know what I mean? They're, they are not like... They are not standing outside with this magic truth that came to them like geniuses. No, they're humans. That's actually what's wonderful about it is that I, their humanity is my humanity, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, the thing, music, I I have a, I have a, a relative. We don't, we, we decided we were related because our last names are both Hilliards and we, our Hilliard lines end in, in the Carolinas the same way. So we just decided we were related. Yeah. There's another composer named John Hilliard and he and I had spent some time getting to know each other on the phone and through email and he, he was in hospice and I had never met him in person. So I took our son, my son, Nick, who was at that point, you know, a pretty good cello player. He's much better now. He's at Indiana. Uh, but he, he and I went down to his, to this hospital room and played the first Bach cello suite, which is all only needs one instrument. And I mean, it's a cliche, but it opened a liminal space between the living and the dead. Hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. death is when you're in a hospice situation, you every there's, 
people near death all around you. And so like the veil between being alive and being here in the temporal place and being in whatever eternity is, is, is feels very thin and very permeable. And when you play a piece of music like that, very simple, you don't need a bunch of people. It's just one person. It's somehow like it says to everyone in the room, it's already a holy place. We're going to organize this air in a way that acknowledges the holiness of this liminal space. And in that sense, it must be thought of as some kind of prayer. How could it be otherwise? It feels like praying. And you can say, wow, Bach, you are, you are a saint for writing this. No, he had his own reasons for doing what he did. And part of what makes that music do its job is not its perfection, but it's humanity. Somebody wrote that who died. And now I'm here. I'm on my side of it. I, I too will die. And this music for a brief moment is making this, this room holy. That's got to be considered some kind of like sacred function. How could it not be? How could it not be? Amen. Peter? Thank you for your time, man. What a yeah! You got it. A super fun. We meandered a bit. We yeah. indulged my ego in the first forty-five <laughs> minutes, and then and we then mine in the second. <laughs> off to the stars. Yeah. Um, thanks for your time. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. Peter, we'll put some links to a few pieces of your excellent, uh, a few of your pieces in the show notes if people want to engage with your work. And yeah, and I think uh, let's also put a link to that Capra album. Josh will put that in the show notes in case people want a little bit of that. Man, thanks again. You got it. 